Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading Oh Great What Now, our weekly podcast of Up Close and Political. Basically, Up Close and Political is our monthly show at the Hollywood Improv with live stand-up, two comics, two experts, two audience members. Well, hopefully more than that. Like, it's like 20, okay? It's fine. I'm not worried about it. Anyway, Oh Great What Now is our weekly podcast where we bring in an elite, lightweight crew of comics and experts for a quick but fun and insightful discussion on the big topics of the week. It takes place in our war room, or, well, at least my living room. And uh, this week, the biggest story was the U.S. pulling out of the Iran deal. What's the deal with that? We talked to Iranian economist Elisaidi Najad, who offers some insight and talks about how it's perceived in Iran and how sanctions affect people there. We also have comedian and writer Samir Suri providing a more conservative perspective on the Iran deal, immigration, and most critically, the runway at the Met Gala. Our favorite Laura Crawford helps run the live stream. And speaking of streams, will we discuss the P-tape? Look, those are unverified rumors. There's no evidence we will. In any case, please review and subscribe to us on iTunes. A few people have had trouble finding us there, and we're just getting started. So it's really important to put your review in so that we show up in the search results and uh, by the way, audio is great, but if you would like to see us have this discussion, just follow our Facebook page where we live stream all the episodes and have them available later. Or really do the best thing and come see us in person. Our next show is June 4th at the Hollywood Improv, and it's going to be on the topic of the California elections. It's kind of crazy how, you know, we talk about California being a leading state. It's the biggest one. We have the world's fifth largest economy, more people than Canada, and nobody pays attention to our elections. Well, to be fair, nobody pays attention to the Canada's either. But, hey, let's give it a whirl. See what happens. We're going to get some comedy, some discussion, and hopefully your questions. 7.30 p.m. You can get tickets on the Improv's website or ours, upcloseandpoliticalshow.com. But while you take care of that bevy of tasks, there's only really one that you have to do right now. Prepare yourself for these soothing sounds of Oh Great, What Now? Uh, this is our podcast where we talk about the events of the week, everything that's happened. Obviously, the news cycle is very fast. Um, so we're going to be going through some stuff with uh, two guests. Um, Samir Suri. Hi, darling. <laughs> Good to see you again. Very funny comedian and a writer for um, a certain publication. I, I hook. <laughs> a certain publication back page. You know, for. for Ashley Madison. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, uh, Very difficult name. yes, <laughs> this is like, I'm going to say the first name and then I'll throw it over to you because you remember the last name? Yeah. You yeah. pronounced her name correctly yeah. on our last Yeah, name. I think I did, right? Yeah. Okay. You did a great job. So, Ellie. Dinajad. Yeah. Did I get that right? <laughs> that was perfect. This <laughs> is amazing. Uh, this, this is the section that's going to go to YouTube, just so you pronounce that name correctly. <laughs> um, well, thank yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a very busy week. Uh, and um, the big topic uh, is, I guess, the Iran deal has been <laughs> withdrawn from. And, um, you know, everyone's talking about that. But I guess we should start off by talking about what the Iran deal is. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> I assume so. But uh, basically, the, the Iran deal... I just well, I agree to be on here knowing absolutely nothing about the subject <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just like, I didn't want to like, you know, there's this term in the improv called pimping, you know, not <laughs> to be confused, um, so but... you are eligible to be part of the administration now. <laughs> pimping is when you sort of sell out someone and be like, oh, why don't you do this, you know? <laughs> but I'll give you the, the, a brief synopsis, as, at least as far as my understanding goes, you know, I'm, I'm no expert, but um, basically the United States entered into a deal with Iran under the Obama administration, which was many years in the making, and it was also between the United States and many countries in Europe and NATO, um, basically limiting Iran to um, only enriching uranium to about 4%, which is uh, sufficient for civilian nuclear reactors, but not for weapons and not for even medical isotopes. Um, and they would be subject to periodic inspections. They would get rid of centrifuges, which were used to uh, enrich that uranium um, and uh, in return, basically a bunch of sanctions would be lifted. They'd be able to sell their oil on the international market. Uh, they would be able to import, you know, uh, manufactured goods, you know, automobile parts, airplane parts, stuff like that. And so, you know, obviously a boon for the Iranian economy. 
And uh, now Trump has pulled out of that, basically on the grounds that, um, well, you know, he doesn't like it because he says it's a bad deal, quote unquote, you know? Uh, no, not bad. It's the worst deal in the history of the world. <laughs> Is that correct? <laughs> not just bad. Yeah. Um, and because uh, I think one of the reasons he cites is that um, he thinks that Iran is meddling in other countries, you know, in Syria and other places, and that the Iran deal doesn't, uh, you know, sufficiently prevent them from doing that sort of stuff because it uh, allows foreign money to go into their economy. Is that a, I would, is that I, yeah, I would dispute his, his reasoning. Okay. Um, I would say the reasoning is uh, it's a sop to Bibi, who is the one world leader that he gets along with the most uh-huh. um, on a personal level. And I think there's some kind of high-speed railway station in Israel being named after Trump because of the embassy <laughs> move. I think that it is literally the case. I can't remember exactly what kind of project it was, but I think that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because Bibi made a speech uh, revealing that Mossad had retrieved, I think it was 10,000 documents or possibly more than that from Iran showing that they had continued with something called Project Ahmad. Mm-hmm. Um, which was started, at, I think the Cold War was still on when it was started, and they said they had stopped it in 2003, and they hadn't. Mm-hmm. Um, these documents, most, I mean, experts are saying that everything that Bibi said in the speech about the documents, we knew going into the deal. That may be so. I don't know if they've seen all the documents. What Bibi said in the speech was just what he was able to say publicly. He had a private meeting with Mike Pompeo about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what information was exchanged there, mm-hmm. um, but showing that, and, and we had known this before, that this, and this was an argument at the time the deal was made against making the deal. We know Iran acts in bad faith about nukes. Mm-hmm. Um, we know they say they're not building nukes, and then it turns out they are. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I actually dispute that. It, it's never, they never found the proof that Iran is actually going towards nuclear. Uh, like sorry, nuclear missiles or any kind of like nuclear weapon, and also in the BBS like in Netanyahu's uh, like presentation, the presentation yes, it was actually the documents that I don't know CIA and other like countries already had, and that's why they started to negotiate the deal with Iran. So it wasn't something new. It wasn't like a, it, it was no indication from his presentation that Iran was violating the deal. Well, what I, I mean, that's um, part of what I said. I mean, I said that everybody is saying that the stuff that was in yeah. Netanyahu's speech, we already knew. Well, but the stuff that's in his speech, we don't know if that is the entire content of the 10,000 or however many documents there are. He had a private meeting with Pompeo about that. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. Um, just to complement to, to what you are saying, uh, even people who had, I mean, I was reading something in New Yorker. And it was like this guy in this, uh, I don't know, in Israel, in this uh, security institute, I forgot the exact name there. And he was saying that, exactly, he reviewed the document and he was saying that everything, everything there, we already knew. It wasn't, it, that was just a big show. I, I, and uh, just a big show to persuade Trump to come out of the deal. Otherwise, it was no revealing like, it was no but the but the the again, I mean, I don't know necessarily if this guy saw all the documents. I mean, he may have worked for some Israeli security agency. I don't know how many people. I don't know how Mossad works. How many people are necessarily privy to everything? We know Netanyahu was the PM. He would have known, um, and we know that whatever he told Mike Pompeo, he told him. Um, I don't know that we can necessarily assume that anybody in any security agency knows as much as BB does. Um, but I think, but if you're, I think if you're like making the case to the general public, right, right, that no, you really should be on board, they really are violating, if you have that information, that's when you reveal it. You know, that's when you at least give people enough to, to win them over if you're just giving them old information. Right. Then, you know, well, I mean, making the case to the public was, the case he made to the public was just they can't be trusted because they've lied to us about this before. The case, I, I don't know what case he made to Pompeo. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that... I think you're rationalizing a process which is mostly is moving by hatred rather than really new information. Because we have to know that this, can, this is not just a US and Iran deal. And all the information, I, th- I, th- I think, I mean, I, of course I can't say I'm sure, but I think it's also shared at least with the other five European countries. 
And those five European countries is among the very few things that in Europe that the European Union is very like New Deal. And they, they on all of them, they said that what Netanyahu said is nothing that we didn't know and it's not, it uh, is, has no indication or it provides no new proof that Iran is not complying with the deal. So, I mean, yes, with, I mean, uh, maybe all, all the, like the analysts and everything in other industries don't know about the deal, but the other countries involved are not buying this argument. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, because the, I mean, the other countries involved in the deal are Britain, France, China, Russia, and Germany. Israel does not have the relationship with any of those countries that it has with us. Um, I, Bibi had this meeting one-on-one -on -one with Pompeo. We don't know what, it, and Israel was not a party to the deal, so it's not necessarily the case that if he showed us, everybody in the deal knows about it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, for me, like, it's probably very different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would just, this was, this was a bad faith deal to begin with, I think. It was, everybody talks about, well, we, we have this inspections regime as if we can just show up. Um, no, we have to warn them. And then under the deal, Iran is allowed like but weeks on end to forestall I the mean, investigation. What are you, I mean, I, that's just, this is something that is a bit surprising to me because this deal, the, the, the inspection that Iran is going through now, or at least until it is under the deal, is the toughest inspection that a country has ever accepted regarding to its nuclear facilities. So yes, if you want like anytime go to Iran, I mean, you will be shot by Iran. It has a sovereignty, it's not like you can, anytime you want, you can just go and check what Iran is doing. Of course you'd need a notice or something. But in any case, putting it in the context, comparing it with other deals, this is the toughest inspection in the history of this kind of deal. It can be the toughest inspection once it starts, but they're able to spend weeks stopping it from even starting, so they can hide whatever they need to hide in that time. Actually, I should say something. I was so happy that mm. this deal was happened. I, mm. And uh, I, I remember in that time I was doing my studies in New York and I went to this Washington Square with other Iranians, mm. so happy and everything. And then I came here and it was this private session in, I mean, that I attend, I attend, happened to attend. And they were talking about the details of the deal. And then, and as Iranian for a second, I feel like maybe we shouldn't have signed that deal. Why we have to lose all these rights? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we are doing something that Pakistan is doing, Israel is doing, China is doing, all this countries are doing and as far as I know some of the countries that are doing are not necessarily much more stable than what Iran is. So well, I'm glad you brought up Pakistan I'm, and I'm glad you brought up, uh, this was something I was going to bring up that we've about this deal we have been at this rodeo before we had this with North Korea we signed a deal with them in the 90s giving them nuclear reactors uh, giving them about a billion in 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 weaponry, you know, with the proviso that, you know, we, we had, I, I think, multiple arrangements with them um, saying, just don't build nukes, just we'll give you all this shit, don't build nukes. And then, of course, they ended up building nukes. Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan was, you know, blithely assuring us for, you know, years on end, no, we're not building nukes. All our, you know, our nuclear power is for... Um, Benazir Bhutto, the first female prime minister of Pakistan. We, we're not building weapons with this, and now Pakistan is India's nuclear-armed next-door neighbor. Uh, yeah, I mean, something that is, again, uh, 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 going back to Netanyahu's speech, some shit that I do remember now is that there's a confusion here that this nuclear... So everyone said, oh, Iran is doing, like, this missile, missile, missile test and everything. Mm. This is a nuclear deal. It has nothing to do with a missile. And most of the, and you know, but people are very confused that, oh, this test is violating the deal. And, and Netanyahu being a very smart person, historically looking at his action, I personally am not in favor of his action, but I cannot deny that he's a very uh, a smart politician. Mm -hmm. And he, very, in a very good way, used that confusion. So most of the uh, most of the presentation was about oh yeah Iran is violating the deal, it's expanding its military in Syria and Yemen, and it's like uh, is this missile blasting uh, missile test and everything. So it was just like 
using that confusion that people already had because they don't know what dealer is exactly about to a, a good PR. Oh, but even all the experts who were saying, listen, what Netanyahu said means nothing. We all knew this going into the deal and so on and so forth. Even they admit that Project Ahmad was... <laughs> The point of it was to, and was very clearly to build nuclear weapons. I mean, even the experts who were saying this speech doesn't mean anything weren't denying that that was the point of Project Ahmad. Uh, but that, for me, even if that's true, that's a, um, another reason for keeping the deal rather than like scrapping the deal. If that's really true, you want to have a presence. You want to go and be able to see the Iran nuclear facilities. Given that as an Iranian, I, I try to hide my part, my part because that part is not objective, probably. But mm. as an Iranian, sometimes I question, why should we be inspected? Anyway, that, that's hard. Then other countries are not. But I also know that that part is not a very rational thing because mm. I have to understand that some of, this un, some of the fact that people are not trusting us is because of our actions. So that's what that's the part I try to hide a bit here. <laughs> well, <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you is um, a lot of the the talk around this is yeah. uh, well, the regime is a, on the tipping point. It's going to fall anyway. I think you're the only one of us sitting here who's been there. Do you? What sense do you get about how close it is? Or I actually went for spring break point. last year. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Good beaches in your life. <laughs> The drinking yes. parties, I'm sure. <laughs> no, actually, it is perfect. It's underground. <laughs> it's like uh, pot in India. The drug scene in India is wild. Yeah. <laughs> I think people say that because they don't know the complexity of Iranian society. Mm -hmm. Iran is not near to another revolution. And actually, it's very bad because I would say that most of this overreaction to any kind of like protest in Iran is actually like killing some of this protest, which is civil for civil right move or it can be the start of a kind of legitimate civil right movement because uh -huh. every time we do have a protest here is being projected as oh it's gonna be a revolution you know the sanctions were effective and that will make the Iranian government to be much more uh, repressive or reactive to this mm -hmm. kind of protest so I would say that this overreaction by Western countries even if we assume it's innocent which uh, is really not helping Iranian people. Uh, regarding the revolution, you know, people, I, I'm reading, uh, when I'm reading, I said, oh, because Iran is like in a very bad situation, uh, the, our currency has decreased its value by one third from December. It is true. It's really bad. Like, even you cannot buy $1,000 right now in Iran mm -hmm. because, it's, because no one is selling or buying, or they, mm -hmm. even if you want to buy, no one is selling to you. Having said that, we had these episodes a lot. I mean, as an Iranian, I grew up with sanctions. And I would say that this is a very, very unfair thing that I grew up. And I shouldn't have grew up with all those sanctions. But as an, and as an Iranian, I would see that my our currency has dropped a lot. So it's just like you pay attention to it when you want. And, not, and when you are inside Iran, you see that people are adopting with it and unfortunately or fortunately accepted that as part of being an Iranian, as part of being a country which is being disliked by other countries and everything. And none of them is new. So Iran is not, is not if, it won, if these causes could lead to a revolution, it would lead to a revolution two or three years after the, the uh, after this new regime right. has actually like came to the power. So uh, no, I don't think Iran is going to be, we're going to have another revolution soon in Iran. I think it'll just, I, I, do you think it'll happen incrementally the way it kind of is with Cuba at the moment? Uh, so, uh, I mean, this is a very difficult question. I'm, I'm not a political economist, so here I'm just talking with my own instinct and mm -hmm. my own experience as an Iranian. I think we're gonna see changes because the the generation who did the revolution are growing old, and the new generation they have no idea of what the revolution or they have some idea but they have no memory or experience. Mm -hmm. if me, for example, I I uh, when I was born, it was the last year of Iran Iraq War. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't remember the war fortunately but I do remember but for the, the next 10 years it was a, we had a reconstruction period mm. and I grew up I had my childhood in reconstruction period but people who are younger than me they don't even remember that mm -hmm. so I don't think they will be they they so for example so for me that I remember that my for example my uncle died during those 10 years because he was affected by the new by the chemical weapon during the war and I know that I know that those chemical weapon has been supplied by the US I can understand why people why the government are is not trusting US I don't think it, they are abusing that actually I would say that I'm not defending the government because they are abusing that but when they say that, at least 10%, 20%, I can sympathize with that because I do remember my uncle, for example. Mm -hmm. But for people who are younger than me, they can't even sympathize with the narrative of the government, even that 20% that I do have. So there will be a change, but I don't think that will lead to a revolution. We will see a very different Iran. But again, revolution, I think that's a bit... It's true. We, I mean, I, as long as I've been alive, I've been hearing, well, now yeah. they've had it. Mm -hmm. And it, it's never the case. What's exactly the, the relationship between, um, you know, the mullahs, the Ayatollah, and the um, sort of civilian governments in Iran, and how are they, like, perceived by people? In there? Uh, they are disliked. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are universally disliked. So it's just like... when. Uh, so, uh, and uh, the thing is that uh, there are two kind of, there are, there are two kind of like uh, Ayatollahs because mm -hmm. here, you know, we, we think, we, we talk, everyone talk about Ayatollahs as, a, as if it's just like this factory that produced the same Ayatollah. No, it's like, <laughs> yes, the Ayatollah, but it's a range of thinking, mm -hmm. it's a range of like, for example, being modern and for example one of my favorite politicians in Iran he's an Ayatollah Khatami mm. he was a president he was the one who in the United States not United United Nations introduced this conversation between um, different like big countries civilization mm -hmm. that civilization should do the conversation everything but so they are so yeah for example or Rouhani, the current one he's not loved by iranian mm -hmm. but he's accepted as someone who is a moderator mm -hmm. that's why like uh, it was at some at some point every kind of mullah or ayatollah were very disliked but then after ahmadinejad's election because he was an ayatollah mm -hmm. he was actually kind of like very against ayatollah and he had all these like arguments that you know that thought people like and people dislike Ahmadinejad mm -hmm. much more than some moderate Ayatollahs. So the relationship is very complex depending on which kind of like party or way of thinking that particular Ayatollah belongs to. Mm -hmm. Khatami loved by, for example, loved by Iranian people. Rouhani, our current president, is respected by Iranian people. But some, some of them which are very hardliner, people mm -hmm. hate them. Mm -hmm. So it's like, depending on the their way of thinking. Interesting. Yeah. How much do you think? I mean, of this this being universally despised thing is that more of a because you hear this in in every country you hear that so and so is universally despised, but they're universally despised in metropolitan areas, and then you go out to the countryside, and that's not true. That, that's actually the same in Iran yeah. as well. Like, uh, yeah, some of the people that I feel like, is anyone in the world even like him? You go, to small, <laughs> <laughs> you go to small cities, and actually, people really like him. I can't um, think of any analogies in America. It's the it's the Nickelback effect. <laughs> you know that Nickelback has sold like 12 million albums, but you swear you've never met someone who owns one? <laughs> Well, there was that famous quote, uh, Pauline Kael, who used to be the film critic at the yes. New York Times. Yeah, when uh, Nixon was reelected in a forty-nine state landslide, she was mm -hmm. she was like, "How can that be? I don't know a soul who voted for her." Uh, yeah, she um, lives in the Upper West Side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's true. So that was my question about 
that was why when I hear whenever I hear so and so is universally despised. I mean, like Narendra Modi is hated by most people I know in Delhi, and yet you leave, and you know there are huge campaign posters for him all over. I was in, in uh, Uttarakhand, which is a a state way in the north of India that borders Tibet, mm-hmm. um, and they had they had just had local elections when I was there, mm-hmm. and. All of the the campaign posters all over town were for the Congress Party, which is the opposition to the current governing party. Uh-huh. And the once the elections had happened, the governing party crushed them. Wow. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, and the governing party had posters there too. But it's like you were just the ones you were constantly seeing were mm-hmm. Congress Party posters. Um, so it's, I think, different who has money and who can get the metropolis to like them and who actually has the, their finger on the pulse of the country. Yeah. Well, there was an interesting thing. Uh, I was just, you know, um, my personal connection to Iran, NPR, was doing a <laughs> story. But they were saying that uh, recently there was like a, some sort of investment scheme in Iran that, uh, that collapsed and it was affecting mostly people in the country, which was unusual because there wasn't usually... There was mostly the rural areas had been an area of support for it, and then but they were the ones who were protesting this because they lost the money. Yeah. Was that? Um, I mean, you're an economist as well. Can you explain? <laughs> I guess exactly what happens. So uh, that's actually a very interesting uh, phenomenon, and that's something actually that I would say that I don't know that much about it, yeah. and that shows how. That, and that was a bit embarrassing for me because when it comes to understanding how people in ru- big cities thing mm-hmm. I, I feel like I have something to say but mm-hmm. when talking about the people in the smaller cities I feel like I can't even un- it's just like so foreign to me mm-hmm. as if they are foreigner yeah and that was very embarrassing and I think that's for me is telling that's one of the dangers right now I think in Iranian society this is a big disconnection mm-hmm. between the people in the smaller cities and the people and they we really can't understand each mm-hmm. other as if you are from two different countries so, so the, the my the thing that I know about that is that so it's basically like it was more it was it had economic reasoning the process process uh, processes are but because mm-hmm. of like this this uh, investment that they mm-hmm. made I think it's, they wanted to purchase an apartment or something mm-hmm. and uh, which was promised by them during Ahmadinejad if I'm not wrong or during one of these like popular more popular at the end of the day, all our governments are populist, but uh, more populist one. And at some point, and then it just like nothing happened. And mm-hmm. even those money, those small savings of them just disappeared without even go- the government have any response for that. So that was really the motivation for those protests. But also it started from a city that uh, uh, the guy who was like, you know, because uh, Iran, so I don't know how to, because you don't have that. I don't know how to explain. So Iran is a Muslim country. Mm-hmm. And so... Wait, wait, wait. Let's back up a second. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so every, so so in every big city or every small city, like, they go and uh, there's this guy who mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, who if you have any kind of question, Islamic question and mm-hmm. everything, you can go to him and ask him. And he got mm-hmm. So it's like the clergyman of the city yeah. and the clergyman of that city uh, he was he happened to be the guy who was competing with Rouhani during the presidential election mm-hmm. and he lost very bad and mm-hmm. he was very bitter by that mm-hmm. so he kind of like said in one of those gatherings that you have to protest against the government mm-hmm. and just like for example and he thought that it can use the people's suffering as mm-hmm. a leverage to show the uh, Rouhani who was his who he was competing with that you know I still have upper hand or yeah. I still have the influence on people but it seems like that 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 led that went out of control mm. and it led to kind of like anti-regime like uh, protests in other small cities and everything mm-hmm. but the whole thing the whole thing was so weird that I don't get because no one in big cities were actually like participated in that project Mm-hmm. That protest. It was a smaller one, and they were all anti-regime, which was surprising because mm-hmm. they were supposed to be the supporters. Interesting. Cool. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> well, I was, I was curious. Uh, speaking of like the economics and stuff, um, you said you so you grew up under sanctions and I stuff. Guess. And so, what like exactly? How does the how have the sanctions affected the economy? And like, how did you see it just as an individual, like versus the way it is now? Uh, I would uh, reply how sanctions affected the economy, but I think something which is much more important is how do sanctions affect the psychology of Iranian people? Mm-hmm. I think. It just like change our psychology as a nation, and you always tell you. We always thought we are under pressure, mm-hmm. and under a kind of pressure which is imposed to us. And every time we turn, tra- we translated every kind of news as something that okay, this is gonna be the end, not the end of regime or anything. This is gonna be the end of our life, oh. as economic life, mm-hmm. and. Uh, because, for example, it started by like we weren't able, so we weren't able to actually buy the basics first, mm-hmm. and I think kind of like I would say that we were so lucky, or maybe the the policymakers in the U.S. were so unlucky that China raised because we get better. So we started to the the impact of sanction become a little more moderated after the rise of China and mm-hmm. we could actually get those goods from China mm-hmm. and then it was just like okay you know we have access to some kind of goods that we never had mm-hmm. but the psychological effect of that was we always thought you know we are being uh, I don't know the, the anxiety they created mm-hmm. and uh, the fluctuate and then um, we kind of like grew up with that anxiety and the economic impact of that is that first uh, do you really see any you uh, so every, so every most of the products which is uh, produced in the US especially uh, if you buy it in Iran it is either the second hand mm-hmm. from for example the other neighboring countries that yeah. it's not directly from for example US or it is the version uh, that which is flawed or something. Oh, factory second. Or? Exactly, yeah. factory second. Thank yeah. you. So, for example, so and this may sound oh okay that, but but it's I mean it is not okay because mm-hmm. uh, you can see the difference. You mm-hmm. can see that we are paying the same amount of money, but our lifestyle or the quality of life is mm-hmm. less impressive or much worse than mm-hmm. the rest of the world just because of the sanction. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that economic uncertainty. For me, which maybe I ha- as an economist, I had to say that most uh, like as the main impact, but economic uncertainty, you, you want to buy a house, you always want to wait to see what's going to be the, the result of the next meeting, which are going to talk about sanctions mm-hmm. and Iran. Mm-hmm. You want to and of course, as an investor, mm-hmm. you can invest and everything goes well. And then with just one sanction, you just mm-hmm. lose all your investment. So economic uncertainty is actually really a strangling economic, mm-hmm. uh, Iranian economy. But again, as an economic thing, it's not a good thing. But, but given the situation, maybe it's not too bad that uh, because most of the uh, industries in Iran are state owned. Mm-hmm. So the sanctions are not that. So it's not like people who have bad factories or they got bankrupt. It's mostly like run by a state, and mm-hmm. they kind of manage to, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't know, insert money into the factory and everything. It's like as a zombie factory, yeah. even though it's not like profitable by continuous working. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the uncertainty is actually the main impact. Interesting. I would say well, that's an interesting connection back to this deal i think mm-hmm. that as far as i know this is not a domino effect the united states leaving i think britain and china and russia and everybody else is in still well that's interesting uh, yeah as i was reading that basically that the european allies at least still yeah, want to salvage and china deal. yeah so right. will they will the u.s be able to implement effective sanctions without actually uh, i would say the question is can they actually stay Mm-hmm. Because U.S. can do because the the issue or the problem is that the dollar is the uh, international currency, so mm-hmm. most of the transaction have to go through U.S. financial system. So even if the transaction is between like a French company and Iran, here in like there is no U.S. Going. Mm-hmm. 
and but if because most of the transactions should happen in US dollar, mm -hmm. it, ha it at some point it hit the US financial system, and then that's where the sanctions gonna mm -hmm. be gonna bite both countries. Mm -hmm. And the so this and the other kind of sanction is that. So basically, right now, the, the, if the sanctions return, mm -hmm. uh, so it's gonna be every country or every company that has a business in Iran. It yeah. cannot has a it cannot have a business in the U.S. And of course, most countries prefer U.S. to Iran. So mm -hmm. it's like I'm so happy that they are sticking to the deal. But the real question is that how are they gonna do that? Gotcha. Makes sense. U.S. is not a country that you can ignore economically. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, I was just, I didn't realize that you guys got like secondhand goods and stuff. I'm just imagining like Ross Dress for Less sneaking in under the border. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lomans. Oh no, you can't get by with that name. <laughs> I think the sandals is medicine. The oh yeah. Yeah. The me I mean, for example, in every, I mean, um, this is very unfortunate and sad, but in every car, in every family, you can find someone who is died, not because the operation, so he because he did had the operation or surgery, and not because the surgery wasn't successful, but because the medicine that they used during the surgery wasn't a good one. Ah, that's and sad. It was out of the yeah. day, and I and actually this one happened during. Uh, but I think by Clinton, Hillary Clinton, that mm -hmm. he started to put, because before her and before Obama, even during George Bush, medicine wasn't sanctioned in Iran, mm -hmm. but he put sanction on medicine as well. I mm -hmm. think that was really cruel mm -hmm. because, yeah, I mean, yes, iPhone lap or other laptop, it's secondhand, it sucks, mm -hmm. but the medicine is actually like take our, our life. That's really sad. That's really sad, actually. Um, I wonder if that sanction will be put back since it was not. relatively new. Yeah, yeah I would I imagine not. not. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, were there indigenous industries that developed to supply stuff um, in response to the sanctions, or? Um... Uh, I I want to be optimistic. There's a there's a positive side to sanctions, but mostly it's negative. So the positive side to the sanctions was that actually last time that I returned to Iran, I figured out that I was surprised. As a result of sanctions, lots of research institute has grown in Iran mm -hmm. because especially in medicine, because no, they know that it is very because no, we have the experience that they can actually put sanction on medicine and we're gonna basically die because of out-of-date medicine. So the good thing, I think this is a fortunate thing that, for example, no, it seems like every good university in Iran, mm -hmm. it has to have a research, a research institute which, ex, which uh, only focuses on how to produce the goods that we might that have taken away. Exactly, uh, mm -hmm. it might have taken away. So, so and, and it seems like it is actually like as a result of that, in those parts that we are in sanction, our knowledge is increasingly mm -hmm. like expanding. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good thing, uh, making something bad to good. But as as economic wise, I don't. Th unfortunately, as a result of the sanctions, we are not getting like industries that mm -hmm. are being created. It is mostly like big dealers of the sanction yeah. and the funny or the sad thing is that most of these dealers of the sanction are from this like revo revolutionary guard people yeah. in the revolutionary guard mm -hmm. so the 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 irony here is that us is putting most of the sanction because of the actions of the revolutionary guard but they are actually the one who is getting rid mm -hmm. because of the sanction yeah. So I feel like does US doesn't know what he's doing mm -hmm. because uh, so what these dealers do is that so they are part of the revolutionary guard but they as a person of the another cities uh, but they usually like with the support of the government government they take the citizenship of another country like Malta mm -hmm. or Canada yeah. and then they start a company in Malta as mm -hmm. a person like as a person from Malta. And then on behalf of like, but it's all Iranian money. On behalf of the, so we said that 
if you are a conference from Malta because of the sanction, you are not interested to do the economically, it's not profitable for you to do the business with Iran. But mm. if you are a Malta company, but you're actually an Iranian government, it's mm. not about profitability, you do the business with Iran. Gotcha. And so, and the person, the middleman there, mm -hmm. the money the company is not him, is Iranian, Iranian government, but he's, even if he gets 1% of the share, mm -hmm. it just like, he becomes super rich. And unfortunately, as a result of this sanction, it happened that most of the rich people in Iran are because of this, uh, are part of the Revolutionary Guard. And mm -hmm. because, of, because they, are dealing, they are doing this middleman role yeah. for Iranian government in mm -hmm. other countries. So knowledge-wise, we, we are getting some good thing out of sanction, but economic-wise, unfortunately, mm -hmm. no. Right. That was, I mean, that was an, that reminded me of an interesting. Just because I don't know about this, so I'm pivoting it to something I do know about. <laughs> um, but with the, there was a, a big push in India a couple of years ago to stop in Bollywood to stop bringing Pakistani actors over, um, and it was you know big outcry against it in Bollywood. This is wrong. But also there were some people in the Pakistani film industry who were like. Thank you, because all our best people are leaving and going to India. Now we can have a real film industry that can compete with Bollywood <laughs> um, instead of just everybody here fleeing to Bollywood. Mm. Um, and it didn't happen, I, th I think. Um, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen because the actor this was done over, Fawad Khan, still appears in Bollywood movies that I, I, as far as I know. Um, but yeah, that was, that was an interesting, a lot of people, some people do, or not a lot, but some people do react to this as, thank you, we can do this ourselves now. Actually, it seems like, that's interesting, uh, actually, it seems like Iranian universities are the smartest institutions in Iran, because, uh, because, you know, for example, after the travel ban, mm -hmm. what happened was that the Iranian universities, they send this, like, letter to most of the, uh, to most their students outside Iran. Mm -hmm. Just former students outside Iran and said that look, if you have problem because of the because of the travel ban, you can always come back. Mm -hmm. And we are thinking of like uh, creating a research institute dedicated to you, so you're gonna have a job and mm -hmm. and you're gonna have and we're gonna send you for training to European countries because mm -hmm. you know they are kind of like collaborating with European like mm -hmm. universities. So very like attractive opportunity. Like oh, mm -hmm. so for example. And the people, it seems like, the, and I was reading an article in here, in actually a very good Iranian uh, magazine, it's called uh, The World of Economy, if I translate it correctly. And most of, there were lots of few people from MIT, from Harvard, from very, very good universities actually returned to Iran as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, exactly, like these people would, wouldn't come back, go back to Iran. But because of the travel ban and they couldn't renew their visa, they actually return to Europe, which could be a beneficial thing. That's interesting. That that's always been something that's like sort of fascinated me and frustrated me because, like, I think like one of the main one of the biggest assets that the U.S. has is all of these great universities that draw really smart people from around the world, and then they come here and they do research and they start companies. You know, like Google. You know, was founded by two grad students who are foreign, um, and so it's frustrating to see people. You know, becoming more insular because I, and cutting off what I think has been a great benefit to the U.S. But at the same time, then you know, you do have other countries that suffer from you know brain drain. It's called uh, because all of their you know best and brightest want to seek their fortunes abroad, and then you know the countries back home don't end up developing to the same degree. So I'm, I'm just sort of like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, where is the balance? You know, what what is the best for the most people? Uh, uh, so actually, at uh, the Institute that I'm working, we have this very interesting like conference every year, and one of the panels was about that. Mm -hmm. And the people were like in from tech industry and also from hedge funds, and and they are also very conservative. And um, most of them, they were openly saying that they are Republican, so it's not mm -hmm. like Democrat, liberal, or something. And most of them, they were saying that we are seeing the impact of it. It wasn't about travel ban or Iran. It was mm -hmm. mostly about like what's happening with immigration here. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that we can see that it is affecting our hiring. It's making our hiring much more difficult, know mm -hmm. that we cannot keep some of them. Yeah. And they were saying that from, like, from business point of view, it's just crazy that 
these students, they come here and do their PhD. And most of the time, they are the ones who have the scholarship from the U.S. university. So mm -hmm. basically what is happening is that your universities are paying them to study here. Mm -hmm. And then, and they are usually the brightest from other country. And then after they finish, just because of the visa, they have to go back to their country. Yeah. And so it, it seems like it is vital. I mean, it is actually the industries or the, some of the companies or has already started to see the impact. Yeah. I mean, even before like Trump, you know, years ago, I, I worked in tech. I worked at um, uh, Microsoft in Seattle. And we had, we, they built an entire research campus across the border in Canada because they couldn't get enough visas for the engineers that they wanted to bring in from abroad. And so the net effect, you know, I mean, I'm an American engineer. We didn't have any problem getting, getting jobs. You know, it was, we, you know, this was, it wasn't like, I was like, yeah, let's compete with foreign people. You know, I wanted people from around the world to come and, you know, make the company better. Right. And so they did, but they went to Canada and, you know, paid their taxes to Canada and everything like that. Um, and that was, yeah, so it just seems so silly to me. But that was even before any of this new nativist push. It was, it was still very hard to get, uh, you know, I think H-1Bs. Um, it was, it is a lottery, it is a lottery yeah. system. That's another, like, subject, the whole different subject. But right, and how it's basically, yeah, exactly. a, you're indentured to this company. This H-1B <laughs> B system is not, you know, you can't, well, if you lose your job at this company or if you want to switch companies, your visa runs out. It's, mm -hmm. You're, you're yeah. stuck with whoever brought you here. Yeah. Um, and, it, I mean, it would be one thing if we were just getting the world's brain drains, the world's professors and engineers, but that isn't what's happening. I do um, understand there's been abuse of it for, like, call center type work with emphasis and stuff like that. Lots of it for <laughs> call center type work. And, and that is the... That is why... Cesar Chavez was uh, was a, what we would call a nativist now. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's because the, the more unskilled work you bring into the country, the cheaper it gets. That is supply and demand. Uh, he wanted workers' wages to go up. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just... Nativist. Yeah, it's, it's not just the brain drains that we're getting. Mm -hmm. Well, I just, I just think I wish it was more of a, you know, an informed conversation about, like, you know, how do we avoid these negative outcomes at various times? You know, I don't want to be like, oh, you know, no one ever abuses the visa system because, you know, there have been abuses. And, but I don't want to, but at the same time, there are all these problems. There are these needs for, for workers, for our businesses to grow and compete on an international scale. And so I just wish it was just like, you know, that it wasn't like we have to have one immigration bill that solves it and it's going to lurch from this side to that side to this side to that side. Uh, I wish we could just have a little more like technical perspective on these are the jobs that's needed. Let's increase, you know. The right, but we are so far from even being in the conversation of let's only bring in people for the jobs that we need filled. That is so. I mean, that would it would be nice if we were doing that. I, you know, as a nativist loon, mm -hmm. um, would like that, but that is so beyond what even what we're even close to. Uh, have you ever? I don't know what you mean. You don't need to. You have sorry. Please. Like, no, have ahead. you applied for H one B? Oh no, no, I was born out here. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, because I applied for H one B. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I totally agree. I mean, regarding to immigration, I totally agree that there are lots of problems. There are lots that they are abusing the system and. I always think like people who are abusing the system, they are, they are basically like, I mean, I don't like to use evil, but they are as evil as like fascist people because, you know, they are giving this, they allow the fascists to basically, they give them some so reason excuse, to crack down. Exam, thank yeah. you. Excuse to do their like kind of, uh, their bad thinking. Uh, but so so but 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 having said that, it is a difficult process H one B. Like for example, uh, for, for me uh, because I was in a non I was I was uh, hired by non profit. I wasn't part of the lottery. Universities and right. non profit are not. But you know, they checked all my credentials, and I have a PhD, and I have a postdoc, and they check everything. So it's not like, you know, I applied and the next day I got it. And there are lots of friends like me that didn't get. Oh, no, I mean, I, I'm sure you can imagine. I know several people who have done yes, this. Exactly. Um, 
and it is even yeah. worse for people who are going for for to work for for profit. And I would say that, for example, I had an inter interview when I was in New York with one of these like uh, big financial institutions in Wall Street. I think my performance in the last stage of the interview also wasn't impressive. I don't want it. But I remember one of the reasons that at the end, the main reason, at least that's the letter, the email that I received from uh, the main recruiter was that they just didn't want to do the risk and apply for the visa. And so it's like most of people like me, so you should just be the brilliant people of that volunteer to say, okay, he's going to be the next CEO of the Goldman, that they actually go there and do that risk for you and, exp and spend that much money for you to apply for visa. So I would say that even the current system, for with the current system, is, is much more difficult for an international student mm. to get these visas. And yes, I'm sure there are some kind of like, there are lots of abuse probably, but I think as you mentioned, if we had an informed conversation about this, there are ways to eliminate or reduce those uh, re uh, abuse while, you know, like preserving- well, One of the problems also is even when it's not being, and this is separate from the way H1B is used in with nonprofits or universities or anything like that, but in tech companies, you, you have, people who came on H-1Bs a decade or so ago and worked their way up the pay scale are now being bumped for people who have just been brought in and can be paid less because they haven't been there very long because they don't have seniority. Um, so that is also, a, and, and the people who came on H-1Bs 10 years ago, now what are they gonna do? Um, so there is, there is to a point, a glut of it now where... I wouldn't say that there's a, a that means a glut. I mean, I think that means that reform is necessary in some respect. But I mean, you know, I, I just know a lot of people who are like, you know, my sister's roommate, you know, Ivy League grad, you know, had interned at this company and they didn't hire her yeah. because they didn't want to go with the visa. And she applied other places, no one would. And it's like, to me, it's also frustrating just because, you know, um, people complain about regulation and they want freedom and stuff like that. And I have some sympathy for that, but I think that's what this looks like, you know? Like these regulations, this red tape is what stops these companies from wanting to do it. Um, and the, that people have, don't have the freedom to stay here and live and work, I think is the most fundamental freedom. And it's one that the government is suppressing to the detriment of private industry. I don't and think that is a free, I think there's a difference, but I mean, the, this argument makes sense if countries don't exist. No, there's a difference between regulating things within the country and regulating things within the world. Mm -hmm. um, this is, and I think maybe too big a conversation for whatever, you know, the hour that we have. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, it's, it's, the decision is to bring people in, not to keep people out. I mean, we, we, a country doesn't have to bring anyone in. Every mm -hmm. person brought in is a decision made by the company. And it is a, um, the or by the country. Yeah. Um, so, and it is, a, um, it is a policy decision that affects the economy. So I mean, people, people are saying, you know, the government should leave the economy alone and let everybody come in. No, you, the government acting to bring people in by issuing them these documents is the government interfering in the economy. Yes. Well, it's a decision, I guess, one way or the other. Yeah, it is. no, it's it's the government distorting the economy. I mean, for me, I don't know if it was about government interference. I didn't mind if government was the, if we had a single payer mm -hmm. health insurance here, and the government was the one who was dealing with the insurance companies, and we all had access. I don't, that's interesting. But for for example, for me, that's more logical, uh, or or not? Yeah, that's more logical that this in this kind of thing when it comes to healthcare and. Uh, education, I, I like to have some government interference, but when it comes to hiring like talent, I can understand, you know, every country has its own like policies and everything, uh, but like uh, limit, but imposing such a high restriction on what, who the firms should hire and should not hire. I would say that, I don't know, this is, this is a kind of restriction that I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to see to be imposed by the government on. Right. I mean, what I'm disputing is not whether 
government intervention is good or bad. I mean, that's again a different conversation. Yeah. What I'm saying is, what is the, which act constitutes government intervention? Mm-hmm. Not doing anything to bring people in, or the government bringing people in. Um, I think the government bringing people in, distorting the, the, the economy by, you know, adding certain types of workers to the labor market and not others, um, that is what the government intervention is. Not if the government were to just say, we're not bringing anybody in. All immigration is a government intervention. Well, um, I mean, there's an element of glass half empty, glass half full here. But I mean, you know, it's not like the government is flying over and taking these people. It's their creating a contract with their educational institution or their employer to come over here on their own and the government can allow it or not allow it. Um, so I don't think that's like, I think if the default is to provide them freedom, then the, the, the default action should be to allow it because they have to do something to literally right. deport well, them. It, well, that, that, that's a very specific type of case. That, and that is a, that's different from the broader immigration debate, which is what I'm talking about. Um, when there are two companies in different countries that enter into an agreement with each other to transfer somebody, or a company hires a spe- this specific person from abroad, we want you. That's different from what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, you know, I mean, there's, I, I believe that the government should have a, a right to, you know, create an informed immigration policy and enforce it and stuff like that. But I don't feel like our current one is well informed to the needs of our economy. I think immigration no, broadly... No, I agree, yeah. I think immigration broadly helps it. Um, I think it's reasonable to limit it. I don't think you should just have open borders. But, um, yeah, I mean, so... I mean, that, that's See, now we're agreeing well. on just everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I like it. Oh, yeah, how much time do we have here? Uh, just a few more minutes, but yeah. Do you have any? I know you wanted to talk about other things this week other than just the Iran deal. Let's I talk mean, about the Met Gala. Oh, the <laughs> <laughs> That's Met what Gala. I really know about what happened oh, this okay. week. I was just pretending to. <laughs> I was just here so I could talk about the Met Gala. Okay. This is something you're an expert Laura on. is mouthing P tape ass from behind uh, yes. the camera. <laughs> we have Met Gala and P tape. That's our like Met last Gala two and P tape. And that's the closer. Yeah. Well, you could you could do the P tape since it's a political podcast. I've done a lot of P tapes in my time. <laughs> <laughs> something that attracts uh, something that was interesting me about interesting to me about Met Gala was like it seems like one of the biggest sponsor was this guy Schwartzman from Blackstone. I from Blackstone. I, this is this big hedge fund, like yeah. which is very close to Trump and everything, and it seems like it didn't. I don't know. I was reading something in New Yorker or New York Times, and it seems like it didn't go really well because he's a very like pro-Trump and everything, and then Matt Gala is more like. Yeah. Uh, so that was, I don't know. That was the only interesting thing about Matt Gala this year for me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it that. was great this yeah. year. Sarah Jessica Parker with a nativity scene on her head. I thought it was fabulous. She'd had that. Yeah, because it was a Catholic theme. I remember it was a Catholic theme. Yeah, Sarah Jessica. Like that, so it, like that was the nativity. Yeah, big D and G dress and a nativity scene on her head. Wow. Um, Ariana Grande had Michelangelo's uh, Last Judgment from the wall of the Sistine Chapel on her Vera Wang dress. Wow. Uh, Lena Dunham was doing an Elizabethan look, but more in the literal sense of you've been dead 500 years. Um, <laughs> pale and bloated and um, what Lena Dunham uh, usually looks like. Um, Met Gal was great. <laughs> you, you can jump in here, Lauren. I'm if you for want. Lena Dunham's fat sex scenes because at least she covered up Adam Driver's face with the pole. Uh, Rihanna looks like the Pope. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. slutty Rihanna Pope. Great. But, yeah, yeah. Um, reminds me of the show Young Pope. Great show. Is it good? I love it. Does Jude yeah. Law fucking that? No. No. He's the Pope. Yeah, but, <laughs> but he's, young really uh, he's the young. It's a spellbinding weird show. They use a lot of strange camera angles to make him look like he's floating or humongous, <laughs> and they shoot it in a very surreal, bizarre Ooh. fashion. It's good. The director's Italian, um, but it's funny and weird. It's like that David Lynch feeling we were watching. You're like, am, am I gonna laugh or is someone gonna get stabbed? <laughs> <laughs> 
A friend of mine said to me that she would, because Cardi B's pregnant and very visibly pregnant. A friend of mine said to me, I wish she had come as a pregnant nun. (laughs) Um, This is actually a great, oh, if we want to bring it back to politics, a great story that uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the historian, told. (laughs) Nixon had uh, his slogan when he was running against JFK. His slogan was Nixon's the one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so JFK at one of his events had a bunch of women come in dressed as pregnant nuns holding signs that said Nixon's the one <laughs> <laughs> although Nixon's original wow. slogan which he got rid of but another friend of mine who collects old presidential memorabilia had a pin with the slogan on it uh, and the slogan was you can't lick our dick <laughs> oh. <laughs> How many people approved that one? <laughs> it was an innocent time. He was, was a Quaker. He didn't know. Um, I was wondering how many people would approve Make America Great Again because that's kind of like a very... So uh, I was reading something that is very similar to how like Hitler was trying mm-hmm. to campaign. But well, that at one point Reagan, was a Reagan-Bush Reagan slogan, actually, right? Reagan actually said Make America Great Again. That was a Reagan line that he was stealing. Yeah. So, steal from the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's only so many, like, broad nationalistic sentiments to go around. Right, highest <laughs> form of flattery, right? Yeah. Oh. Um, all right. So, let's cover the P-tape. And the P-tape is real. The P-tape. Well, that's that's what... Uh, so, our preamble and our, right. our discussion was whether the P-tape was real or not. Whether Trump's <laughs> obsession with it was evidence of guilt. Um, let's go around, Samir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did think his obsession with it was evidence of guilt, but once I heard uh, what the actual... Ac- See, I, like most people, thought that the accusation was that these hookers were peeing on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I heard that what they were actually doing was peeing on a bed that Obama had slept on, yeah, that sounds like something Trump would do. <laughs> But was he sleeping in that room? Like, did he have to get a cot, go to another, <laughs> go to another yeah, suite? Yeah, it was probably a suite. Yeah. He was in charge on his card. <laughs> you know. Uh, interesting. Do you think it's real? I don't know, man. I hope it is. And what I just don't get is, I don't get why it's that big a deal. Like, of all the things yeah, that Trump no, has no. done, this is, like, the thing I care least about. Of know? all this, like, we knew he had sex scandals. Like, yeah. this is the fun part. <laughs> Stormy is the fun part. Yeah. You know. I think the importance of that is what he's actually doing is very similar to whether this tape is real or not. What he's actually doing to Obama's legacy is yeah. very similar to what. That's the real piece. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the real piece. Well, do you ever hear? It's kind of like. Do you ever hear those tapes? Sorry to interrupt about how like Nixon was caught on tape mocking JFK for getting assassinated, basically. What? And he was like implying that LBJ did it. Wow. And he was just saying, he's like, he's like just calling LBJ a jerk and stuff. And he's basically joking that LBJ killed Nixon. I mean, he killed her, killed Kennedy. Wow. <laughs> like, where he's like laughing about it. He's like, yeah, Charles D. I, and this is paraphrasing. Mean, I'm not, right, not yeah. Said, but he's essentially on tape being like, ha ha, he took him out. He found the idea laughable because of them having been political enemies. He was like, ha yeah, he killed him. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of fun. Um, I, I remember the, I can't remember, I heard about this. I don't know if it's even real. But I heard there was some survey done in, of people who worked in D.C. for, in government jobs about which show um, was more accurate, House of Cards or Veep. Mm-hmm. And that overwhelmingly the answer came out beat. So that's yeah. like when this thing came out with the, the, the White House aide or something saying, well, it doesn't matter what Kane says, he's going to die anyway. That sounded like a line out of beat. Like, yeah. we, the, I think this is just how all of these people always talk. It's coming out now because Trump has surrounded himself with too many leakers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as we leakers. heard from... <laughs> 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 But there was a great part of Fire and Fury where it was, which is such a good gossip book, by the way. Everybody should read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not like, I mean, his bestseller numbers don't need me to endorse him. Um, but um, what, what, that there were so many leaks that people who worked in the White House could see when, when something leaked and they would know, oh, I know who put that out. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody had like their own little people and it was a whole mm-hmm. network. Everybody knew everybody was leaking and everybody knew who leaked what. There's one great quote uh, in the New York Times where it's an anonymous leak from within the White House. 
where the language is like, you aren't going to believe what we have coming next month. It's going to be incredible. Like, <laughs> 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 Stockholders meeting or like you're working for MGM, be like, next month we got amazing releases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. All right. Well, that we sounds like how I would leak things. You're never going to believe what we're doing now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how Scientology is doing. Just a quick wrap up, which is yeah. in response to all this negative publicity, you know, moving back here, it's funny. Scientology is a thing right. that's like, heard a lot about us? Yeah, find out more. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was like, a... what you've heard may have shocked you, but what you don't know is even more amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like, how are you <laughs> that was like when the oh, Book of Mormon came out. There were ads by the Mormon church saying, you've seen the musical, now read the book. Yes, yeah. they're spinning it. That. They're like, yeah. who went, who's going to go to the Book of Mormon and be convinced? There's only one person. <laughs> I was one of a Leah Ramini interview jag on YouTube, and for like a month, my YouTube was flooded with ads by the Church of Scientology shitting on Leah Ramini. Wow. With like her dad in it, and it wow. was wild. That is nuts. Well, if you want the inside scoop, though, join the Church of Scientology. <laughs> Get a job in the marketing department. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> or just watch Leah Remini's Joe Rogan interview and Adam Carolla interview, and you'll they'll tell you everything. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, yeah. All the dirt from Leah Remini's family. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you uh, for watching or listening, and thank you guys for thank joining you. me. Thank and, you. And uh, yeah, so we have Laura Crawford running the live stream. And uh, <laughs> you can like turn the, you can do the selfie cam if you want. Um, and then uh, Samir Suri and Ellie. Side <laughs> It's a pleasure to have all you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.